happy to be here and to be back with y'all. Welcome to the Witchy Historian. My name is Crystalina May. I'm the Witchy Historian. I'm bringing you some witchy history today. It's history sewed whatever episode this is. And today we're going to talk about Pope John the 22nd. And uh, we're going to really focus on a particular popple bowl that he released. And we're going to kind of cover the ranges of the years 1316 to 1334, which is the years that he was Pope. But we're going to touch a little bit before that and a little bit about how this particular popple bull and his view of sorcery and folk magic practices impacted the later persecution of witchcraft and sorcery. So before we get into all of those things, I'm going to give you some updates. So the school semester has gone into full swing. My schedule is a little bit kinder to me this term. I think I mentioned this last time. So far, things are going okay. If at any point things get a little hairy, I will let you guys know if I need to rearrange my episode schedule. But at this point, I plan on keeping things the way that they are. I'll be releasing an episode every two weeks as per the norm at this point. This may change, so keep an eye out on the Facebook page. You can find me at facebook.com slash thewitchyhistorian. Keep, just keep an eye out on things. I'm not super great at posting, but when I do post, I, I post updates. I do post updates. So I will also notify you in an episode if something's going to come up. If something's happening, if things starting to get hairy, I will let you know here first at the beginning of an episode be like hey guys so things are starting to get stressful and this is going to be the last episode for the next however many weeks so I will give you a heads up first before things go super south I have learned my lesson from this last spring (laughs) at least let's hope so but for now things are going to remain the way that they've been and we should be on track so I would like to remind you all that if you would like to advertise on the podcast, you can go to podbean.com slash the witchy historian ad space. You can look and see how much it is. I haven't figured it out yet. I, I haven't, I haven't gone clicking around, but you can figure out if you want to advertise on the show and yeah, that helps me out. That gets content out to you guys and that gives you all a platform. I want to give you all the opportunity to share what you have with the world and with the rest of my listeners. So please feel free to advertise on the show. Now, like I did a couple of weeks ago, I wanna do a quick check-in on some current events. So there's a lot of legislation coming down at the state level for There's a lot of anti-trans rhetoric. There is a lot of anti-CRT rhetoric, which is kind of laughable because it's all based on false premises. So before you jump on a train, before you go to town hall meetings, before you go to um, or school council meetings, things like that, please understand what they're proposing and understand what the content that they're trying to either approve or disprove 
actually contains before you pick a side. Again, going back to what I said a couple of weeks ago, use critical thinking, get all of the facts before you move forward with your decisions. But there's something that's really, really important that I wanted to touch on that is outside of the realm of legislation and school policy and all of this other that all of these other things that are happening. There has been a very intense rise in Nazi and white supremacist rhetoric over the last 10 to 20 years, but it's actually never gone away. There were people from Nazi Germany that came to the United States that were protected, that were allowed to carry their anti-Semitic they're racist, they're homophobic, they're really, really dangerous rhetoric and continue speaking it and using it in the United States and across Europe. They were allowed to infiltrate spaces such as the church and school boards and politics across the Western world. And they have now gained enough power that they are not afraid to make a public demonstration of their hate. We saw this in 2017 in Charlottesville, which is where I live. I didn't live here at the time, but there was a Unite the the Right rally, is what they called it. What it really was, was a bunch of neo-Nazi folks who don't live here and never have, who got together, formed an unofficial militia, came into town, committed violent acts on the University of Virginia grounds, and it resulted in the deaths of people. Now, one of the largest Nazi marches since Hitler's Germany is being planned in Florida. I have not gotten information on when and where this is supposed to occur. All I know is Florida, and that they're planning it to be one of the largest ones since the 1940s. If you are in Florida and you made it through the hurricane, I'm so glad that you're safe. And I hope that you don't have a lot of damage or anything like that. But please, please be safe. If you need to get out, get out. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community, find queer allies, find queer family, find a way to leave because you are not going to be safe there. People of color, especially darker skinned, black, um, darker skinned Latino or Hispanic peoples, Native American peoples, we are not safe in those spaces. Please protect yourselves. And if you are white presenting or white and you are going to be physically safe in those spaces, you need to stand up for us. You need to protect your friends, your family, and your country. I'm not gonna tell you to go out and punch a Nazi today, but we have members of our community, our Jewish friends and families, our black friends and families, our trans and queer friends and family members who are literally at direct threat of being killed because of these groups. We literally fought a war and won it to defeat this kind of rhetoric. And now for us to sit back and allow it to happen in the name of free speech is a disservice and a disgrace to the freedoms that we claim to stand for 
as Americans. If you're not from the United States or you're from another nation, think back to what you were taught about Nazi Germany. If you were taught about Nazi Germany as a child in school or at university, consider the history there. The legislation that was passed, Hitler came to power through a legal election. He forced his way into the chancellorship. He overturned an election and legitimate results in order to seize power because he had just enough to get into a high, high enough seat to get there. His highest claim, his platform, was to make Germany great again. That was his campaign slogan. He blamed the Jews. He blamed the mentally disabled. He blamed anyone but who he determined was German enough for the issues that were happening in Germany. Instead of getting to the root of the problem, the real cause of the issues, he placed blame on everyone else and instead exacerbated the problem. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, it probably is going to start looking familiar very, very soon if we don't do something about it. But again, I'm going to beg and implore you, if you see people taking violent action against others for no reason other than the fact that they're Jewish or that they are black or that they are a person of color or that they are queer or that they are trans, don't be silent. When it comes to things like violence and life and human rights, silence is not just complacency, it's complicity. We have an obligation through the social contract to not allow harm to come to those around us. And that means that people who are actively inflicting violence upon others, like neo-Nazis, don't have a safe space in our safe spaces. We can't have a safe sheet pen if we keep inviting the wolves in. So something to think about, again, please use your cognitive thinking skills. Please use critical thinking. Don't listen to just what the news media says. Find the facts, go digging, be sure that you're vetting your sources and move forward and listen to your intuition. What is your gut telling you? Find that small, still voice, depending upon what your upbringing is. That may sound rather familiar to you, but we all have it. That's your intuition. What is your gut telling you about a person, about an organization, about an event? If something doesn't sit right with you, if something in the rhetoric is off, figure out why. Because nine times out of 10, your intuition is going to be spot on. Anyways, moving on from that. I'm recording this early because I'm not going to be here on Friday. So I'm actually heading out of town. If any of you listen to the Witch Bitch Amateur Hour podcast, which I've mentioned before, they have previously attended a retreat that is um, or was founded by one of my other podcasting friends, Rachel, who is from the other podcast that I listen to, that I personally listen to religiously, no pun intended, Two Geminis and a Leo. Rachel is one of those Geminis, and she founded this retreat called, it's a wellness retreat called Anahata's Purpose. It's in Pennsylvania every fall. I went last year, and it changed my life. It's a big part of the reason why I started this podcast. 
and I'm going again this year. I'm actually facilitating a class this year about altars and sacred spaces, and I will be recording those classes and putting them together to make an episode. It's not a live show, so don't feel left out, but you all will be able to hear me in a little bit of a different environment as I share some of the research and class building that I do when I create my episodes. But since this is supposed to drop on September the 8th, I'm going to read the calendar of the day. So Friday, September 8th, it's Virgo season. Planets in retrograde. Y'all, it's a big one. This retrograde season is heavy, 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 heavy. We've got Pluto. We've got Saturn. We've got Neptune. We've got Mercury. We've got Uranus. And we've got Jupiter. Mercury will be leaving retrograde on the 16th, but it will be in the post shadow until the end of the month. So the rest of September is going to be a little bit on the hairy side, but coming into October, most of those retrogrades are going to be in those outer planets. So things are going to start to internally hopefully settle down for you a little bit. Fingers crossed should be able to start doing a little bit more of that more greater reflective work. Today we have a quote of the day from James Lendl Busford, who is an author, jeweler, and watchmaker. And he says, the planets are God's punctuation marks pointing the sentences of human fate written in the constellations. And I really like this quote because it really reminds us that astrology, first of all, is a science, right? And it's not exclusive to pagan practices. It's not exclusive to people who are not part of the Christian faith. People from all kinds of religions and faiths use the stars in how they interpret their faith practice and how they practice their faith. So I really wanted to share this quote with you today. So I was really glad that this calendar landed on today. Now on to our episode. Pope John the 22nd and the Super Ilius Specula. So Pope John the 22nd was born Jacques Duez. He came from a fairly affluent family and he was appointed chancellor at the University of Avignon in 1297. And he was then made the Bishop of Fréjus in 1300. So during his tenure in this position, an assassination attempt was made on his life by a knight and the knight's priest accomplice. Now, remember this. This assassination attempt was supposedly done by sorcery and poison. So shortly after this, Jacques was made chancellor by Charles II of France and then he was promoted to the Bishop of Avignon in 1310. Here, he participated in anti-Templar suppression, so you might remember the trials of the Templars, and then he lent support to Boniface VIII in his endeavors as Pope. Not much later than that, Pope Clement V, who you probably remember from the trials of the Templar episode, promoted Jacques to Cardinal Bishop of Porto Santo Rufana, Rufina, in 1312. So here we see that there is a direct influence of political power and money 
on a man who would become the Pope. Jacques was not a man of God. He was not, he did not attend traditional seminary. He did not dedicate his life to the service of the church. He didn't take vows of chastity early on in his career like many other church leaders did. He was a little bit of an anomaly at the time. Instead, Jacques is promoted through the church due to his influence, his affluency, and his knowledge, his existing station in life, his class. So in 1312, a conflict between Clement V and Emperor Henry V arises, and this is regarding the limits of papal power, which we kind of touched on in the last history episode on the Trials of the Templars. So when Clement dies suddenly in 1314, the cardinals of the church were called on to select a new pope. Promptly, there was a lot of infighting. They split into three factions and there was no papal election until 1316. So there's two years where there's no pope. So finally, the Count of Poitiers interferes. He calls a papal conclave where he literally takes all of the cardinals, all 23 of them, locks them in a room, and he says, you cannot leave until a new pope is elected. Subsequently, they elected Jacques, who chooses the name John XXII, and he then decides to reside in Avignon instead of Rome. So he is carrying on the legacy of what we call the Avignon papacy. There's a certain group of the popes that chooses to remain in Avignon instead of living in the Vatican in, in Rome. So Clement's will, Clement V, he dies, his will as the pope gives to his successor, who is now John XXII, 70,000 florins, which at that time is a lot of money. So John very quickly gifts 35,000 of this, half of this money, to the cardinals who voted in favor of him. First thing he does is gift half of his willed money to the people who voted for him, and only the people who voted in his favor. He then begins to reorganize the church, and this reorganization is very heavily reliant on regulations and new ordinances, and he's very involved in the political and religious movements across Europe. He gets his hands dirty. He makes his opinions known. He's very militant in the way that he rules the church. John's letters to non-Catholic leaders, both political and religious, demonstrate that his, he believed that his appointment as Pope granted him absolute authority over all. If you live in Christendom, I'm in charge of you. I rule over the kings. I rule over the paupers. I rule over the other ministers. I don't care if they believe in the Catholic way of believing. I don't care if they are dissenters. I am the head of the church, which makes me head of all Christendom. And he genuinely believed this. John had intended to move the papal seat to Bologna, but his attempts to suppress dissenters in the area actually ended up resulting in this huge revolt. And there was intense violence. And eventually the Papal Palace that was being built there was completely destroyed. So John remained in Avignon. He remained in power until his death in 13. 
34 at about the age of 90, and that makes him the longest reigning Avignon Pope. Some of the more notable moments of John XXII's papacy include his support of England's Edward II's violent suppression of the Irish lords Robert and Edward Bruce, the canonization of Thomas Aquinas, and a very heated conflict with Emperor Louis IV, who was competing with Austria's Frederick I for the imperial seat. So at this time, we still had the Holy Roman Empire, of which Rome was the seat of that. The Vatican City was under the Pope's power, but everything, everything else was underneath the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor. Well, Louis IV and Frederick I are fighting over this empire seat. And so Pope John eventually interferes. He claims that he has papal authority to administer the emperor. But this actually overrides Louis' election as emperor. He was elected legally. And, he, and so Pope John calls for a crusade against Milan. So Louis, thinking that he is the rightfully elected emperor, defends Milan. John then subsequently excommunicates Louis and then deposes him. So when the church, and this is where the church has ultimate authority, the Pope can depose the emperor. So then Louis declares John an illegitimate Pope and calls him a heretic. Can you imagine calling the Pope a heretic during this time? when this guy literally just deposed you and stripped you of your throne. John then places Louis under interdict. So this is banning him from practicing the Christian rites that we've just, we've discussed this before in previous episodes. So Louis is issuing a demand. He's like, wait a minute, now I can't even practice my Christian rites. I can't take communion. I can't even go to mass. I can't do confession. What am I going to do? So he says, okay, John, come to Rome, or I am going to force the entire holy city into submission. It's no longer your territory, it's mine. So John's like, all right, fine. I'm going to send my legate to you. He sends Orsini off to Rome. So the, the papal legate is kind of like the papal lawyer, right? Sends Orsini off to Rome. Louis says, I don't want to talk to this guy. I want to talk to the Pope. Denies him entry. So then Orsini with papal authority, places the entirety of Rome under interdict, preventing the entirety of the holy city from practicing Christian rites. So Louis is then consecrated and crowned by two cardinal bishops that still are living in Rome, and they then appoint a new pope, Nicholas V, who we now recognize as an anti-pope. Pope John XXII, he retaliates, so... In order for him to retaliate, though, we have to recognize that there is an entire Christendom, an entire church that is split between Nicholas V and Pope John XXII. And so what happens is he's waiting for the favor to shift in his direction. So there's one of the archbishops, Matthias von Bucic. He dies. So John acts quickly. He appoints Heinrich von Vernberg as archbishop to that position. This bolsters his efforts against Louis. Finally, 
Nicholas V submits to John in 1330. So this whole period of time from the, the whole first 15 to 16 years of his papacy, he's going head to head with another pope and with the emperor. So you can see how his entire papacy is already fraught with tensions and people are already thinking he's a heretic and that he's illegitimate and that he shouldn't even be in this position. Like I mentioned, he was not someone who was dedicated to the church at a young age. Many of the other popes had been monks and priests prior to this. He wasn't even a church guy. He just happened to have a lot of political power, so he was kind of given jobs in church leadership. But he was, he was a chancellor first, which is a political job. But the real reason that I wanted to talk to you all about Pope John XXII is because his papal sermons regarding his role in the persecution of witchcraft. So since the previous popes, like Alexander IV, who I did my first episode on, previous popes that we've discussed, they discouraged any belief in witchcraft as superstitious and heretical, right? So there wasn't any church-sanctioned persecution of witches from the 11th century through much of the 14th century. But you might recall that little assassination attempt back in 1307 that I mentioned. Well, like I said, the accused parties allegedly used poison and sorcery to carry out their plot. I say allegedly because even though they were found guilty, of course, the trials were kind of shoddy back then. And the evidence presented was mostly hearsay. 19 years after that attempt, after sorting out most of his troubles with Louis, John releases his papal bull of 1326, Super Ilius Specula. In this papal bull, he specifically aligns folk practices and non-religious divination as witchcraft and consultations with Satan himself. John claimed that these, quote, Christians in name only made, quote, agreement with death and a pact with hell. He accused witches of making sacrifices to demons, worshiping demons and spirits, and making objects to trap spirits by magic. Another quote here, inflicting greater and greater damage to the church. John essentially instructs church members to police each other to prevent them from teaching or learning about these practices. The punishment for sorcery, as it was called, was excommunication as well as, and this is another quote, the imposition of each and every punishment which heretics merit by law, except for the confiscation of goods. Now I wanna clarify here that this only meant that they would not confiscate their personal property like clothing and food, but they would confiscate their land, their housing, things like this. Any accused person would have eight days to stop whatever they were doing and dispose of any evidence of it. The Popple Bull included the crimes of sorcery, the holding and keeping of books or writing of any kind containing any of the before mentioned errors or to make a study of them. It should also be noted that the sentence of excommunication was automatic. So if this accusation was made, and the supposed evidence was not disposed of or eliminated within that eight days of time, 
that was done automatically before trial. Also, excommunication required money and time, a lot of time, to reinstate, something that the working poor were not able to do. No trial or evidence was needed to make an accusation, simply a claim. Once that accusation was struck, again, the person only had eight days to get rid of the things they likely didn't even realize they had before they were excommunicated from their church, likely for life. For context, literacy rates were incredibly low for the ordinary person in the 1300s. So to assume that they knew what anything said with certainty implies literate readership, but the historical record at this point indicates that literacy was likely at 20% or less of the overall population. This includes the clergy and the very highest echelons of society. Most people could not read beyond these very tiny pockets of people. And if they could, it was at a very, very rudimentary level. It also should be noted that many of the practices that would be targeted by these accusations were just kind of people doing what they'd all, what had always been done. These were things that had been passed down from generation to generation. Things like herbal remedies and folk medicines, old practices that their grandparents had done, that their parents had done, that the Pope suddenly declared to be sorcery and a crime at the level of heresy, the punishment for which was death. Pope John XXII had a reputation for being preoccupied with so-called black magic. And he accused several of his enemies of malficarum or witchcraft throughout his career. According to historian Norman Kahn, these were devices contrived by the Pope for his own political purposes. Historian Richard Kiefer also wrote that John was active in the persecution of sorcerers. But it's important to note that the massive witch, witch craze and trials, th these didn't really happen until late in the 15th century. So we're talking late 1400s. However, Super Ilius Specula and John's stance on sorcery set a precedent that led to further escalation of fear surrounding the unexplainable. By naming sorcery as something real to be feared and equaling it, to the severity of heresy in the eyes of God and the church, John sanctioned the creation of an environment in which any accusation could result in the death of another, and the accuser could potentially be rewarded for this. And in order to clarify that point, many, many times, an accuser would be rewarded with a portion of the property or goods that were confiscated from the accused. And again, Many of these people, even before the trials themselves began, in these early days where accusations of heresy and sorcery began, many of these people were convicted and put to death based on hearsay or very minimal or no evidence at all. They were strictly accusations. So people would claim things based off of fear, based off of anxieties and tensions or just personal vendetta. And in some cases, especially in France, England and Scotland, would be personally 
awarded a portion of the confiscated property for turning in their neighbor. Another thing to note is that little kind of mess of excommunication. So remember during this period that individuals very deeply internalized their faith and their faith practices. They identified very deeply as members of Christianity, of Christ's church, and faith practices were a very key part of how they expressed that part of their identity. Excommunication did not just kick someone out of their local parish. It excluded them from the church altogether. They were banned from attending mass. They were barred from saying confession. They were excluded from taking communion. This particular brand of excommunication was called vitandus, or one to be avoided. This person was to be met with total exclusion from all of those who carried membership in the church. This could affect a person's ability to buy, buy or trade for food or other necessities. Excommunication did not only strip one of their Christian identity and their opportunity for salvation. It could interfere with one's ability to access necessary resources to survive. And that is if one survived the trial and wasn't executed in the first place. So while Pope John XXII was certainly not solely responsible for the witch craze and the vicious trials that followed, nearly a century later, his rhetoric surrounding sorcery and folk practices certainly set the tone for how his successors fashioned their anti-witch mantles. But that's all I have for you today. So again, you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash the witchy historian, or if you're already on Facebook, you can use the search bar and search the witchy historian pod listeners. It is a private group because if you are a practicing pagan and you are not out of the, of the broom closet yet, we want to protect your identity and all of that from employers or family members or people just in the community who might not be friendly to those practices. So we have a very safe space in there. It is kind of quiet in there, but y'all are always welcome to post. Again, TikTok, TikTok at the witchy historian instagram at witchy historian you can send me an email at the witchy historian at gmail.com and yeah that's where you can find me i also have a patreon patreon.com slash the witchy historian you can support the show if you want to don't forget if you have a business or products that you would like to have advertised on the show you can always do that so podbean.com slash the witchy historian ad space you can do that too so the next episode, like I said, I will be recording the classes. It will not be a live show. So I want to be very clear about that. But I will be recording the classes that I'll be teaching about altars and sacred spaces. And you'll be able to kind of hear me in that different environment. And there will be some Q&A sessions. I will splice the two classes that I'm, the two sessions that I'm teaching together into one episode. And can I get, get the best pieces of both <laughs> into one episode and I will publish that for y'all on the 22nd. In the meantime, I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week. If I see you at Anahata's, I can't wait. I'll probably be seeing you very, very soon. Or I will have already seen you by the time you hear this. Who knows? And if I'm not seeing you at Anahata's, that's okay, because I'm 
sure I'll see you out there on the interwebs. Have a great rest of your week, great couple of weeks, and we'll see you on the 22nd from Anahata's Purpose. Bye! Thank you.